0: But as they're saying, oh crap, we're not going to say anything else, it's almost like you can see Jesus with the Indiana Jones whip, two of them. And he whips them out and wraps them up and pulls them back and says, now I've got a question. I'm not done owning you publicly. It's my turn. There are three people in this game, and only you two have had your rounds. It's my turn. But he said to them, verse 41, How is it that they say that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, is David's son? The Bible teaches that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. The prophets teach that it's going to come from the line of David. The the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees agree with this. Even though they don't believe in the prophets, and even though they don't accept Samuel and Kings, they have embraced the idea that the Davidic line is going to produce the Messiah. And they are looking forward to that. You say that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, is going to be David's son. But let me ask you this. But David himself says in the book of Psalms, and then he quotes Psalm 110. This foundational king, priest, messianic, anointed leader verse. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? They spent forever trying to set theirs up, and he just quotes a verse and says, how does this work? Now, what's going on here? There are three authority figures in this passage. There is the Lord, there is Yahweh, and there is David. There are three parties here. And this is clearly a scene when David, who is the speaker of the Psalms, says that the Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So David in- in pictures two different lords over him. So this first Lord, when you're quoting from Psalm 110, is the word Yahweh. If you go back to Psalm 110, it will be in all capital letters. Capital, capital letters capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's the translator's way of letting you know that in the Hebrew, this says Yahweh, the personal, intimate, relational name of God. And so then he says, Yahweh said to my Lord, and this Lord here is a lowercase Lord, and it comes from the Hebrew Adonai. And Adonai just means sir, Master. It can mean king, it can mean a lord that rules over you, or it can just mean a term of respect, like sir, as you're talking to the baker who's making your bread that you're buying it from, or whatever. Okay. David says, Yahweh in heaven on the throne said to my lord, sit at Yahweh's right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. So David clearly sees that there are two authority figures above him. Every single Jew has interpreted that second Lord, the Adonai, the Sir Lord, as the Messiah, the one that will come from David's line, the ultimate Lord, the ultimate human Lord that will rule. But what Jesus is saying is this. Now, this is, I know that you are like, "Wow, you are getting a lot." Yes there's a lot of culturalness loaded into this statement of how can he be his son because what every jew would acknowledge what everyone in the ancient world would acknowledge this is common knowledge okay this is common knowledge among everyone in the ancient world jews gentiles everyone is that david had no one over him other than yahweh Everyone in the ancient world believed that the king was the highest human authority in the land, and that there was no other human authority above him at all. And the only thing higher than the king was the God that appointed him. If you're in Canaanite, it's Baal. If you're in Egypt, it's Ra. If you're in Mesopotamia, it's Marduk. But the only two highest authorities is the God in the heaven, and the king on earth. There is no higher authority than him. The other thing that everyone in the ancient world would recognize and accept, and, and and this gospel truth, there is no argument with this, is that your son is never greater than the father. Never. The son is never greater than the father. And this, even in death, you're not greater than the father. You never become greater than your father. Even when your father dies... Even when Solomon builds a bigger empire than David ever did, he brings more peace than David ever did, he has more money than David ever did, and he has greater influence and political authority over everybody else around him more than David ever did. Solomon is still never greater than David because the son is never greater than the father. You, you can, because in every other culture other than Israel, they would have ancestral worship. Probably the most modern-day example of this is if you've ever seen Black Panther movie. And he has to die in order to take the throne. And he goes back and he has a vision of all the ancestors before him. And and he has to seek their advice and be led by them. And if you go to other parts like the Philippines and stuff, they'll build altars to their their, their grandparents and stuff and and put a picture over the fireplace and the mantle. And they will make offerings and sacrifice to them and they'll seek their guidance. And a Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya seeks out his father's guidance even from the afterlife. There's this idea that even when you're dead, you're still greater than me. When David says, Yahweh said to my Lord. And everybody says, well, that's Solomon or that's the Messiah. And Jesus says, how can it be David's son? The son is never greater than the father. And David has no other Lord above him. So who is that man? And they can't answer. She says, okay, have a great day. And the implication he's making is, I am David's son. But for me to be greater than him and to be his Lord, that means I also preexisted him. Which means I'm God. I'm the God-man. That passage is about me. And the only way David's statement can be accurate is if the Messiah pre-existed David. And the only way he can do that, how does the son of David pre-exist the father, David? That he's God, the incarnation. Now, we know that's the answer, but he will give that answer when Caiaphas puts him on trial. He will allude back to that, and he will give the answer and say, oh yeah, you know that question a couple of weeks ago that I asked you? Here's the answer. I'm the God-man. And what Jesus is saying is, you answer this. And they can't. The most challenging questions they had for him, he owns them by just saying, you looked at this completely wrong. Let's come at this angle and everything. Oh, it all makes sense now. You're looking at it from the rear end, but if you face it head on, it all makes sense. And then he says, here's another thing that you've been looking at from the rear end. And I'm going to make you face it on head on. Who is that son? And they're like, holy crap, we've never thought about that. Or we have, but we've just denied it because of the implications of that. And they can't give an answer. And he says, have a great day. And he drops the mic and walks away. Jesus is the greater authority. And not only has he owned them and schooled them and the theological interpretation of the scripture, but he ends the conversation by saying... The reason I have... He goes right back to the first question. By what authority do you say all this? Well, let me ask you a question. John from God or John from the people? And they can't answer. He says, I'm not going to answer that question. And then now at the end, he comes back and he says, you want to know what authority I am? I'm that son. And the only way I can be that son and that Lord over David is if I'm the preexistent God. And if there he can connect the dots, then he's answered the first question that they've asked. I have the right to interpret Scripture because I am God. And the only way you're going to get the answer to that first question you've asked is if you can take the dots that I've just placed in front of you and connect them. And because you're too evil, not too dumb, but too evil to connect those dots, two weeks later when you're putting me on trial, I'll connect them for you. And and the entire time he just keeps owning them. And the most beautiful owning of this I love is the fact that he comes right back to the first question and then hints at what the answer is. And then two weeks later he says, yeah, that conversation's not over with. Here it is. This is the great teacher. And you thought you were so brilliant in all these theological things, but I'm just bringing it all together and showing you this has made sense from the very beginning. You were just too evil to correctly interpret it. Stupidity, intelligence has nothing to do with it. Selfishness, narrow-minded, power-hungry, evilness has everything to do with the lack of interpretation. Now, he doesn't even go on to the second of Psalms 110 when it begins to then say that he's also in the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews will pick up on that one and develop his entire book on it and basically make the point that he's also king and high priest and the only way that that can be possible, because it's illegal according to the law, is if he's outside the law. And the only way that could be possible if Jesus fulfilled the law and overturned it and becomes greater than that. But then it's also Jesus is eternal. Like, and if you want that whole argument, then go to my Hebrews teaching. But he doesn't even go into all of that complexity. And in my opinion, I don't know if you can tell, but like, this is my favorite part of Luke. I just think that whole owning is like the coolest thing in all the Gospels. So... Those three discussions are just like the best. Chapter 20, verse 45. As all the people were listening, Jesus said to the disciples, Beware of the experts in the law. Now after he just owns them, he then turns to the people, and he says, Beware of them. You just saw how, pathetic that you thought they were so amazing after all these hundreds of years as they taught you the Word of God, and they, they, they helped you understand God and all that kind of stuff, and they haven't done jack crap. They, they haven't given you a better understanding of God. They haven't given you a clearer understanding of the Messiah. They haven't helped you understand the, the, the plan of God's redemption. And it's going to be evidenced by the fact that you're going to kill me and turn on me. They haven't accomplished anything in all these traditions and all these years of theological teaching. Beware of the experts in the law. They like walking around in long rows. And they love elaborate greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and banquets. And they devour widows' property as they show, make long prayers. They will receive more severe punishment. All these people you've admired, they have devoured your lives to wear the most expensive clothes and to sit in the best homes with the best views at things, at the best entertainments, and to own all your property. Think about it. You think that they're the reason, the thing that's going to fix your lives. You think they're going to make your nation better. You think that they're going to make a utopian society, that they're the answer. But if you really think about it, they're feeding off of you to make their lives better. And meanwhile, they can't even answer theological, simple theological questions. Beware of them. In contrast to them, chapter 21, verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into offering boxes. And he also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow who has put in more than all of them, For they all offered their gifts out of their wealth, but she offered hers out of her poverty, put in everything that she had to live on. What is the wealth of this? These two small copper coins are basically, our two lepta. Two lepta are worth one half of a quadrants, or one one a hundred and twenty-eighth of a denarius, which is a day's wages. So basically, it's six minutes worth of pay. It's pennies. It's a dollar. And so God looks at her and says, "She just gave one of a hundred and twenty-eighth of a day's wages. Six minutes. What you? What? what when an average day, normal person." Who is in the ninety-nine percentile poverty makes in one day, and what it makes in six minutes, which is chump change compared to the Pharisees and Sadducees. She has given more to God than the wealthiest Pharisees and Sadducees who give hundreds and hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, because she gave out of her nothingness. She has nothing. And she gave it. And they have everything. It's like when Bill Gates donated a million dollars to Hurricane Katrina relief programs. And everybody was like, oh, he's so amazing. Look at his generosity. He makes that back and probably by noon in interest investments. Like, that's chump change to him. Now, I'm not saying anything about his motives or anything about how God can use that for good and how that was a great blessing. But to be like, oh, you're so amazing. That's so generous. What God is, no, no. But if there's like a woman who's like only made 100 bucks that week and she's got multiple kids and and, and she's barely making means, means mate and she gives like $99 of that to charity to her, that's, that's generosity. That's sacrifice. And that's what Jesus is saying. These these guys are going around and stripping you of everything. And they walk around in these expensive robes and all this kind of stuff. And you follow them like they're amazing teachers and they're amazing guidance and teachers that will, that will make everything great as you, you sell your soul to their, their temple government that they've created. And meanwhile, this woman has nothing. And, and she's given way more to God with a greater heart and sacrifice than any of these people have. And yet, she's the one you marginalize. She's the one that you believe that God is cursed, that she's somehow superstitiously contagious because God is punishing her somehow, and that you're going to ostracize her and look down her and join them and the way that they view her, and she's like that because they've stripped her. You are in an upside-down world, and you think I'm turning things upside down he owns them theologically. He owns them in the debates. He owns them on the mall of Harvard. But now he's also owning them in their lifestyle and they're living out the law. This is not the kingdom of God. This is your kingdom that you've built. And you Jews who are poor, you help build this kingdom by surrendering yourself to the power of these governmental leaders who are stripping you and obeying you and they can't even interpret scripture correctly. And that is where Christ owns them. Here's what's interesting. Some scholars have pointed this out. One of the first things you do in the Passover meal, which is what Jesus is going to become, the Passover sacrificial lamb, is that you are to bring a lamb into your house on the 10th of Nisan. And for four days... You are to inspect it for blemishes and defects and sicknesses. And if it passed all the tests of a pure lamb, then it's worthy of sacrifice. And many scholars have said it's very interesting that right before he gets crucified in all three gospels, he is put in a more rigorous testing and trial than he has ever been put in all his years of ministries. And they are it's almost like they're bringing the sacrificial lamb in, not even knowing what they're doing, and rigorously testing him for flaws and impurities and, 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 and anti-godness of giving to Caesar or anti-government by giving all this stuff, and he passed every test of inspection, proving that he is the pure, perfect lamb, ready to be slaughtered. By the very people that inspected him like you do with your Passover lamb. And that's what's going on here. Because from this point on, he's going to give some more teachings and then everything turns against...